0: Welcome back brothers and sisters. This is Seed Wars number 31 and today we're going to take a closer look at King Nimrod and there is an interesting author by the name of Gary Wayne. You see an image of him in the bottom right. He wrote a very long detailed book called the Genesis Conspiracy and how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. It's quite a book. It's uh, 98 chapters long, 702 pages, and all of the sources are well cited and documented. So Gary Wayne is a a stud in terms of um, spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, doing a lot of research, trying to put it all together. There's just, you know, and, and similar to my lectures, there's a certain level of speculation there because Gary wasn't there any more than you or I were there. We're talking about events 5,000 years ago. We're trying to piece it together through all the different writings and, and so on and so forth. And so, I wouldn't say that I agree with him on every single detail in all 702 pages. But I, I would say that I, there's a tremendous amount of um, similarities in, in in what we uh, what we believe. Gary doesn't get too heavily into what took place in the garden. Uh, he really kind of Picks up the ball at Genesis 6, where most people, and this is an opportunity for me to say this again. The majority of Christians and non-believers out there don't even know about Genesis 6. They don't even, they, you know, they think the reason the flood came is because mankind was just evil. And yes, it's true, mankind was horribly evil and wicked on every level, but mankind has always been evil. And he always will be evil because his flesh is fallen. That's why Cain killed Abel. And that's why we see wickedness all throughout every aspect of the Old Testament moving into the New Testament. It wasn't the sin that brought the flood. But it was the genetic um, marring of all of God's creation. All the animals, the plants, the humans, the whole shebang. And so God had to hit the reset button. He took Noah and his immediate family and two of every animal, male and female, that were made in their original likeness back in Genesis 2. And he stuck them on the ark, and he hit the button and flooded the whole thing, and he wiped out all the Nephilim. Now, understand, it was never God's goal or desire to completely snuff out the entire serpent seed race. Um, That would be refuting the prophecy just three chapters earlier in Genesis 3 about I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we know that the seed of the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush its head. So you, know, you have to understand, the serpent seed was meant to live on. God's providential plan was to allow the serpent seed to survive the flood and be revived afterwards, which I believe was through the person of Nimrod and his Babylonian system. And that serpent seed line would live on all the way through history. Now they get smaller over time. You fast forward a thousand years to David's day, and he's only dealing with a 10-foot giant named Goliath. Goliath was nothing compared to his ancient predecessors. And you fast forward another thousand years after Goliath, and they're down to, you know, six-foot men. But nonetheless, the serpent seed remains. And that's who the cabal are today. The 1% royal bloodlines who've been perpetuating their genealogy by only marrying into other royal bloodlines going back thousands of years. And they are the ones who are going to help bring in the new world order. And they're grooming this serpent seed line to one day become none other than the Antichrist. The Antichrist, in my opinion, will be of the specific genetic lineage of the serpent seed that can be traced all the way back to the Nephilim, all the way back across the flood to Cain and his lineage, and all the way back to the godfather of the serpent seed line himself, Satan, who was originally known as the fallen angel Lucifer. He took on a name change when he fell. But I believe that that DNA is the common thread throughout the whole system. Now that's hard for people to put their hands around, and that's fine. If you don't like what I've espoused in Genesis 3 with Eve, fine. That's your prerogative. You know, you understand, you you know my opinion, and there's still more research out there. There's still more lectures to do to try and vet that. It remains a giant mystery nobody has it all figured out nobody can say with 100 certainty what happened but we know for a fact that somewhere along the way whether it be in the garden or whether it be in genesis 6 when the fallen angels took on flesh and and then they took on the daughters of men and, and made the the giants the nephilim somewhere back in those days the fallen angelic dna got mixed in with the humans and it created the demigods the hybrids the the Hercules, and the Nephilim of yesteryear, of all the ancient legends that go back all throughout history. Pretty much every legend that exists throughout history is all wrapped up around that Genesis 6 situation. And so that's where Gary uh, Wayne really picks it up, is he goes into great detail about um, Enoch, both the good Enoch and the evil Enoch, who was part of Cain's seedline. He goes into great detail about Genesis 6 and and all of the different um, strains of of uh, Nephilim, um, you know, and all of the Canaanites and so on and so forth. So, I think it's a great resource material. Um, do we look at it like you know, inspired biblical canon? Of course not. But does that mean that it's not extremely valuable? All of these people who dedicate their life and their time to studying the ancient writings and putting it together. It's all valuable. I mean, you have to use a, a, a discerning spirit when you investigate it, and we're not all going to agree on everything wholeheartedly. But nonetheless, um, I feel comfortable plugging this book. I don't know Gary Wayne. Um, I've listened to a few of his lectures. I've read some of his books, and uh, I think he's, uh, he's, a, he's a very intelligent and a very credible witness to um, the pre- and post-flood world. So we're going to do a little review of Genesis 6, The Conspiracy, written by Gary Wayne. And if you're interested, then you can uh, purchase that book and and do some of your own exploration. But these are some of the things that Gary has to say. So in one of his chapters, he says, the Tower of Babel was built about 101 years after the flood by Nimrod. And Wayne asks the question, why did God object to this building project? And his answer is, that the root of the issue is this. The tower was erected not only to honor the false gods, but also to memorialize their act of defiance and rebellion towards the one true God of the universe who had sent the flood. Nelson's Bible Dictionary states that the tower was erected as a symbol for human pride and rebellion. And I think he's exactly right. It is a symbol. And we know this is where the Masonic religion really derives from, and the symbols are everything in that religion. He goes on to write that it was an act of self-glorification, a statement of independence, making the rebirth of the antediluvian epoch of corruption, debauchery, debauchery, and rebellion. Wayne goes on to say, Nimrod desired to be worshipped as a god in his own right, He wished to create a world government with himself as the absolute dictator in direct opposition to God. He quotes uh, Porter, who wrote the new illustrated Companion Bible, by saying that Babel was the embodiment of evil, a wicked kingdom set up against God and his chosen people as a symbol of pride, oppression, wealth, luxury, sexual license, and idolatry. Wayne goes on to say that Nimrod had usurped absolute control of the planet by force, and Babel became his main first building project. The basis of his new Babylonian religion was to unite under one umbrella the religion in order to build a new world, or a new Atlantis. Now I'm going to interject here. These are my words, not Wayne's. The pre-flood world, that's where the legends of Atlantis are. Atlantis was this utopian, one-world society controlled by demigods, which was part of the old world and was eventually swallowed up by the Atlantic Ocean. I believe that's just another rendition of Noah's Flood. That the Atlantic Ocean swallowing up the city-state of Atlantis is really Noah's Flood destroying the old world where all these demi-gods ruled. And so what Wayne is saying here is that Nimrod wanted to rebirth the ancient Atlantis of the godmen who ran everything. And we see Atlantis come up through Platonian philosophy. And even in Sir Francis Bacon and many of the fathers of uh, America and some of the European leaders throughout the, the Renaissance, they often quote and refer to the ancient Atlantis, and so the pre-flood Atlantis is sort of this utopian idea for the serpent seed, and it really is just um, an old way of saying the new world order. Now back to Wayne, he says, through their unification of beliefs and efforts, they would fear no enemy nor the god of the universe. The ancient utopia of Shinar holds a significant prophetic role as a parallel lesson from antiquity of the last days. Couldn't agree more. What Mr. Wayne is saying is that the the, uh, land of Babylon, Shinar, and the Tower are a prophetic parallel archetype and typology and foreshadowing of the last days New World Order B system. Gary goes on to say, quote, God had just two generations previously washed the world of its corruption with the flood, and now the earth was vulnerable to the same terrible fate of backsliding into absolute violence, corruption, and debauchery, as well as apostasy and rebellion, which was being disguised as this disingenuous promise of Atlantean utopia. Satan was close to winning the experiment with his third revenge at this point in time. Now, to interject, what Wayne is saying is that Babylon in the tower was the third experiment of revenge. We know the first one was the garden, where the Nakash beguiled Adam and Eve. The second one was obviously Genesis 6, where the fallen angels made the agreement to sleep with the daughters of men and create the hybrids. And then right away after the flood, the third attack on humanity is Babylon and the tower God therefore intervened providing humankind once more with a new opportunity to succeed by confusing the languages and scattering the people around the earth God's action ensured that humanity would never again fall totally under one dictatorship until the last days when all things that must take place are to be completed at the new Babel Now Wayne goes on to discuss what Josephus had to say about Nimrod building the tower. Josephus, of course, was the ancient Jewish historian 2,000 years ago who wrote many, many volumes, including the Antiquities of the Jews, about all of the legends of of, of humanity going all the way back to the garden. And most people believe him to be a very credible author. And Josephus said that Nimrod built the tower first because in case there was another deluge. That this way the people could take refuge on the tower until the floodwaters receded. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Nimrod and his people were just coming off the heels of the flood. And so it would stand to reason that one of their goals for building a huge tower that would reach the heavens would be in case another flood came to wipe out the earth. Now, we know in Genesis that God made a decree with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. But that doesn't mean that the serpent seed fully understand that. And so they were hedging their bets by building another tower. The second reason that Josephus mentions is, and I think this is the more important reason, is that Nimrod wanted to construct a tower so high that it would allow him to climb into the heavens to avenge both the people and himself through slaying God who's the one who caused Noah's flood in the first place. Josephus further notes that Nimrod's intent was to get revenge on God for destroying his forefathers. And the forefathers that Josephus was speaking of were not the descendants of Seth, but rather they were the posterity of Cain and the Nephilim, who were Nimrod's role models. And that's a very important distinction that Josephus makes, which I completely agree with. Nimrod wasn't angry because of the, of the seed of the woman, the, the, the lineage of Seth throughout the patriarchs. Nimrod wanted to get revenge because of the destruction of the Nephilim and the serpent seed line of Cain and his lineage. Once more, Nimrod was likely utilizing the tower as a symbolic gesture that he would climb the tower and hold God accountable, and it would also serve as a monument or to memorialize the pre-flood Nephilim and their entire epoch. Nimrod usurped power over the people of Shinar, and then he reintroduced the religion of the pre-flood Nephilim. And I agree with that completely. By understanding Nimrod and his, his Babylonian system, We are getting a bird's-eye view of what was going on before the Flood, because it's basically the same thing. Nimrod was the one responsible for reviving the pre-Flood witchcraft, sorcery, and idolatry of the mystery religions. Wayne goes on to state, I therefore conclude that Nimrod was lamenting over his fallen idolized demigods and the descendants of Cain, and not his own ancestry dating back to Seth. Notice how Wayne makes a connection between Nimrod and the Demi-gods, and then also the descendants of Cain. Because Wayne understands that there's a continuity between the wicked seed line of Cain all the way down to the Nephilim. By the way, there are multiple ancient texts, including the Kebra Nagas, which is one of the old Ethiopian books, that say that when the sons of God the daughter, uh, came down and took the daughters of men, when the fallen angels took the daughters of men, that they actually took the daughters of Cain, because they were a corrupted seed line, and they were a promiscuous seed line, and the females within Cain's genealogy were, um, at that time, pursuing the angels, and so the angels chose the promiscuous daughters of Cain. and. So it becomes evident through the writings that Nimrod can be traced back to Cain himself because they're all part of the same seed line. Now Nimrod achieved this through his government of tyranny and evil dictatorship. Nimrod imposed his will and a state-sponsored religion upon the people of Shinar. Now I want you to think about the communists Uh, nations that have existed in history. You can think of Babylon as like the archetype blueprint for the communist nation. I'm talking about the Marxist communist nations of the past. You know, the the Mao Tse of China who killed millions of people, um, the Hitler's and, you know, Stalin's and Lenin's who had no problem wiping out entire people groups. Uh, and and you know abolishing private property and religion and freedom of speech and so on and so forth that all comes from Nimrod Nimrod's first state sponsored religion you can think of as a Babylonian Masonic Communist Marxist religion Wayne would say that through brute force and fear Nimrod was successful in implementing his rebellious and heretical religion Those who would not abide by these ways would be callously removed, likely by death. He goes on to say, Nimrod might as well have been a Nephilim. Remember, the people of Nimrod even drank blood, just as the Nephilim did in spite towards God. So we know that after the flood, they were blood drinkers and cannibals, just like they were before the flood. We see that come up again and again all throughout the Canaanite nations, And so it becomes evident that they're just mimicking what was going on before the flood. He goes on to say, it is clear that Nimrod idolized the giants and he purposely conspired to recreate the same kind of godless world that existed before the flood. And I would say, why would just a regular man do that? I don't believe that he was a regular man. I do believe that science has confirmed that there is such a thing as cellular memory, epigenetics, that the the human genome, the DNA, it stores volumes and volumes of material about you and about your past and your generational past going back from ancestor to ancestor to ancestor. That's why the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, because there's a genetic blueprint that's being passed on from progeny to progeny to progeny that helps create everything from character, morality, tendencies, and the whole nine yards. And so Nimrod was just falling in line with his previous predecessors before the Flood. Wayne states that he's not sure if Nimrod was a Nephilim or not, but he espouses that Nimrod at least partnered with the Nephilim in the Babel Project. He goes on to cite the history history of the Armenians, which record that Nimrod actually enlisted giants to build the mountain-like tower at Babel. That's another name for the Tower of Babel. Back then, they, they would build artificial mountains in the shape of a pyramid, and it was called the Mountain of Tower or the Tower Mountain. He goes on, uh, Wayne goes on to describe some Aztec legends that we're going to look at in a minute, but he also confirms that Nimrod went to war with neighboring Nephilim tribes. We see that in Genesis 14. That's an account that we're going to take a look at here in a couple chapters. It involves uh, Lot and Abram, but basically um, Nimrod, who we know is renamed after the tower incident, he takes on a new alias of Amraphel him and King Amor and the other title kings do battle with the southern kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they sack those kings and take over the land. And it makes it clear in Genesis 14 that they, they do battle with the Raphaim and some of the other giant clans, and they wipe them out. And so for Nimrod to be able to do that would strongly suggest that he also was a Nephilim and a giant as well. And if Wayne is right, If if Nimrod did partner with a Nephilim, it's hard to imagine some little scrawny regular everyday Joe partnering with large giant serpent seed Nephilim. The only way that would happen is if he was a Nephilim himself. Wayne goes on to describe what he refers to as the original Great White Brotherhood, also known today as Freemasonry or The Craft. Now. When he says great white brotherhood, we're not talking about race here. Um, the, the, the white aspect of it isn't in reference to a particular race, although they were connected to the Aryans. You know, if you study Nazism, it comes from theosophical society. Madame Blavatsky, she talked about the six root races back in the days of Atlantis. One of them was the Aryan race, the, the giant um, white skinned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired men. And so from that aspect, there may be a racial component to the Great White Brotherhood. But the other reason that they call them that is because supposedly they had an aura around them. They cast off light like Lucifer. They were the shining ones. Remember, the angels, the, the Seraphim angels were the shining ones. And so they they projected an Illuminescence around them, the Illuminated Ones. And so these original Great White Brotherhood, known as the Craft, that's the other name for Freemasonry, which, by the way, is the other name for Witchcraft, because Freemasonry is Witchcraft. Uh, They're very, very close descendants of each other. And so when someone uses the terminology, the Craft, that can be applied to Freemasonry equally as well as being a pride witchcraft. Wayne states that Nimrod had learned the seven secret sciences of the antediluvian age. Now that's what the Book of Enoch teaches. The Book of Enoch says that the fallen angels came down during Genesis 6 and that they not only did they sleep with the women, the daughters of Cain, but they also revealed the eternal secrets of heaven, the seven sacred sciences, you know, chemistry, and music and alchemy and physics and mathematics and all of that kind of stuff. Wayne states that uh, Masonic craft legends record Nimrod as a master mason who loved the sacred sciences. In fact, Nimrod was a great mason who applied his trade as he pleased. Not only was Nimrod a great mason, but he was also considered the first Masonic grandmaster of the post-Diluvian world. And I believe he's exactly right. And the Regis manuscript supports this notion that not King Solomon, but rather King Nimrod was the first excellent grandmaster after the flood. We know that Solomon would become a very powerful grandmaster, as well as a very powerful wizard and sorcerer. But all that knowledge of Solomon's had derived from a previous era, and that is the era of Nimrod, who was also a great master wizard and a sorcerer. And all of his knowledge derived from before the flood, with the actual Nephilim half-angel humans hybrids themselves. Now, Wayne states that, according to craft legends, and this is well documented throughout the Masonic legends, Nimrod used all of the Masonic signs and the Masonic tokens and the Masonic symbolism within his buildings to distinguish those buildings from the rest of mankind. And now we're getting into some juicy tidbits because this is where all of the secret Illuminati symbolism derives from, is going back to this era. I believe that what we're looking at when we're looking at the dollar bill is an unfinished pyramid of Giza, the Egyptian pyramid. But of course, there's strong evidence to suggest that that pyramid even goes back to the pre-flood era, and it is an archetype and replica of the Tower of Babel. Remember, the Tower of Babel was called a ziggurat. And when you look at ziggurats, the ancient ziggurats are almost always in A pyramid shape. and What's fascinating is we know that the Tower of Babel was never completely finished. Might that explain why we see the unfinished capstone at the top of the pyramid here? I mean that that's always, people have always looked at this and thought, oh that just represents the pyramid in Egypt. But where did they get the idea for the Pyramid of Egypt? It goes all the way back to the Babylonian era and even to the pre-flood world. This is the Tower of Babel. And the all-seeing eye that sits above the Tower of Babel is the eye of Lucifer. It is the eye of the serpent seed. It is the eye of Nimrod, also thought of as Horus and Osiris and Tammuz and many other names for him, according to the craft legends. And so really, what we're seeing on the dollar bill is a symbol of the Tower of Babel. At the top of the Tower of Babel is the rays of illumination for those who are within the Babylonian secret society who understand the esoteric knowledge and the truth, and their goal is to defeat the living God and to become gods themselves. And that's what Norvis Odo Secularum, written at the bottom of the symbol, actually means, the new world order, which is really an old world order. It's the order of Atlantis. It's the order of the pre-flood Nephilim. It's the order of Nimrod. It's the serpent seed order. And there are plenty of symbols out there today just to kind of corroborate that. These are all Masonic symbols. The pyramid with the all-seeing eye. Here's the compass and the square with the all-seeing eye and the rays of illumination. They had to use the compass and the square to build the great magnificent ziggurats and pyramids of the ancient era. And it's within these pyramids that they encase all of this uh, sacred geometry and all of the witchcraft symbols, the hexagrams and the pentagrams and things like that in order to communicate with the fallen realm. Wayne would state that Nimrod organized and fused the newly found cult with all of the elites of society forming a transgenerational secret society that means a secret society that's being passed down from one generation to another. Every rich, elite, royal bloodline, when they have children, they groom those children. Those children are raised in the ways of the Illuminati. They're raised in the initiations, they're taught all of the esoteric knowledge, and they're brought up and groomed to be the next uh, leader of that transgenerational secret society. And it passes from father to son, father to son, and father to son. And I believe that that is really the essence of the Illuminati, the bloodlines of the Illuminati that go all the way back to to Cain himself, and and even before that to the garden. So Nimrod has been venerated all throughout craft legends. Um, He's considered the godfather of the post-Diluvian Masonic era. And they believe that he's directly a descendant going back to Tubal Cain, who was the master mason before the flood, the one who learned how to master all of the arts and metals and brass. And Tubal Cain goes all the way back to the original godfather himself, Cain, the first one who was kicked out of Eden and pursued a city, or he went out into the east into the plains of the east, which is where Babylon lies. And he actually built the first city recorded in the scripture. And the city was named Enoch after his son. And so Cain appears to be the first master mason. He's the godfather of all the Masonic legend. And it goes all the way down to Tubal-Cain, crosses the flood and gets picked up through Nimrod and continues all the way down. The Bible makes it clear that Nimrod would go on to construct all kinds of cities. Not only did he build the Tower of Babel, but he built cities called Iraq and Arkad and Shinar and Rehoboth and Nineveh within Assyria. Uh, Legend has it that it took him 53 years just to build the Tower of Babel itself. According to uh, Masonic legend, Nimrod would construct the Tower of Babel with more than a thousand masons already indoctrinated into the secret sciences. And this founding Masonic organization at Babel became known as the Ultra-Secret Great White Brotherhood, which later would be transferred to the famous priests and pharaohs at Heliopolis, Egypt. And so what I've said in past lectures, we've done some pretty interesting lectures on Masonic symbolism back in the Days of Noah series. And what I said is everybody gives the Romans and the Greeks all this credit for the Pantheon and all of the architecture. But isn't it interesting that they each look the same? One, the Romans got it from the Greeks. Well, guess what? The Greeks got it from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians got it from the Babylonians, and the Babylonians got it from the fallen angels and the Nephilim. We've looked at the hanging gardens of ancient Babylon going back before the flood. All of the renditions show the different royal arches and the different pillars and all of the Masonic symbolism. And so essentially, this is how the craft has been passed down. The ultra-secret Great White Brotherhood is all of these Masonic leaders who dabble in witchcraft, sorcery, and idolatry, and who build all of the religious monuments for the last 5,000 years, and have all of the secret science knowledge of how to build, using the compass and the square, of how to build these structures. They have to use the geometry and Pythagoras, and you know, we know Pythagoras was part of the occult brotherhood, as was Leonardo da Vinci. All of those men were, and this knowledge just keeps getting passed down. So it, went, it was transferred from Babylon to Heliopolis, Egypt. The Heliopolis means the city of the sun god, and then later it went to Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and it continues to be passed down to modern day. That's why the Washington D.C. has a bale shaft sitting in front of it called the Washington Monument and the Capitol Dome, which has been erected in the exact replica of St. Peter's Cathedral, which we know that the bale shaft monument sitting in St. Peter's Cathedral was actually torn down from Heliopolis, Egypt by one of the ancient popes, and they got it. The Egyptians got it going back to Babylon. So you know they've just been transferring the imagery, the architecture, and the witchcraft from from society to society to society. Now Wayne also believed that Nimrod coexisted with other giants in that era, and he discusses some very interesting ancient Aztec legends that are basically stories about the Tower of Babel. They're about these famous ziggurats. One of them is called. Teotihuacan and according to Aztec legend it was built by the giants and what's really fascinating about it is they built this uh, tower in order to transform men into giants now that's really interesting because this is the first time that we're seeing that maybe the tower has some other purposes that according to the ancient Aztec legend The giants were building the tower in order to use it to transform men into giants. And this is where the concept of a stargate comes to mind. That is it possible that the Tower of Babel was some kind of ancient stargate or portal? Now, you know, a lot of people, they like to throw out the conspiracy theorist uh, word here in order to, to decredit, discredit people who say that but you got to really take a look at it. I mean, we've got a lot of symbolism out there right now in Hollywood and everything throughout throughout the past 100 years that that really demonstrates the Egyptian pyramid which I just demonstrated to you was was what the Tower of Babel looked like. And you know, the movies like the movie Stargate are all about using the Egyptian pyramid to open up a stargate. And we see that time and time again, and, and a lot of times we see it connected to the Saturn mythology as well. Well, a stargate is simply saying you're opening up a portal to a higher dimension where the demons and the fallen angels are. Now, we know that that's what the Masonic religion is all about. That's why they use all of the sacred geometry, that's why they use the six pointed star, and they point it you know, when they do their rituals. They aim those six-pointed stars towards Saturn. They believe that when they access the wind, the air, the earth, and the fire, and they do all of the other aspects of the rituals connected to the stars, that they're opening up portals throughout the spheres of Saturn and allowing in the fallen angels and demons. And so if that's what Freemasonry is doing today, why wouldn't it have been doing that thousands of years ago back at its source? This is exactly what the fallen angels taught in Genesis 6. They taught man about the the, uh, stars and the moon and the winter and summer solstice and, and the zodiac. So you can bet your bottom dollar that that's exactly what Nimrod was doing. Nimrod was using all of the sacred geometry and all of the Masonic religious components to try and open up doorways and communicate with his fallen ancestors. That's exactly what he was possessed to do. And I think these ancient stories help corroborate that. These Aztec legends say that these giants were transforming men into giants through some kind of alchemical occult process. If you study alchemy, which was the root of chemistry, that's where we get the word chemistry from. It goes back to the time of the occult, alchemy, to try and turn base metals into gold, lead into gold. There was alchemical rituals, to try and convert spirit and soul into flesh and flesh into soul. So we've got a lot of ancient alchemy that talks about transformation. We even see this in in the Catholic Church with transubstantiation, converting the body and blood of Christ into the literal body and blood. And so I think it is very possible that the tower of babel did have some kind of stargate portal potential exactly like cern does today i did a lecture in the past looking at cern and comparing it to the movie stargate and showing some of the similarities and and showing some of the sacred geometry that they're using and showing some of the hyperdimensional physics that they're using to open up portals outside of our three-dimensional time space and so when people sort of flippantly say hey CERN is like a a New Age Tower of Babel. I think they're exactly right. I think there is a tremendous amount of credibility in that statement. Now, Wayne goes on to describe uh, a book written by Hancock called Fingerprints, and it actually describes this ancient Aztec legend. uh, And this is how it goes. Immediately after the light and the sun arose in the east, there appeared gigantic men of a deformed stature who possessed the land. So we're seeing some important things there. He's talking about the sun rising in the east. These were all sun worshipers back then. All of these pagan systems were sun worshipers. Cain himself was a sun worshiper. That's why when he left Eden, he could have gone four directions. But you know where he went? He headed east. He headed toward the rising sun. All pagan religions ever since Cain have worshiped the rising sun. And so here again, we see this being demonstrated that in this particular legend, this Aztec legend, they were headed towards the rising sun of the east. And there we see gigantic men of a deformed stature, not just big men, but they're deformed. And they possessed the land. They were in charge. It was their land that they, they had taken it over. Enamored of the light and beauty of the sun, They determined to build a tower so high that its summit should reach the sky. Once again, they're enamored with the beauty of the sun. They're sun worshipers. They're pagans. The fallen angels taught mankind this before the flood. Having collected materials for the purpose, they found a very adhesive clay and bitumen with which they would speedily commence the building of the tower. And having reared to the highest possible altitude to reach the sky, The Lord of heaven said to the inhabitants of the sky, Have you observed how they of the earth have built a high and haughty tower to mount hither? Come and confound them, because it is not right that they of the earth living in flesh should mingle with us. So this ancient Aztec legend is obviously another uh, retelling of the Tower of Babel incident. It's the exact story. And they give us these very fascinating details that these gigantic men of deformed stature helped build the tower. This would corroborate that Nephilim, and, uh, that Nimrod and his boys were Nephilim, serpent seed Nephilim. And uh, we see here how in this story it says, uh, the Lord of Heaven says, Do you see how those on earth are building the high and haughty tower? The word haughty in the Bible is used as proud. They're building it out of pride. And so also they go on to say, let us confound the language because it's not right that those on earth living in flesh should mingle with us. That's an interesting term, mingle. We see that come up a lot with the mingling of flesh and spirit with the, um, to the hnosis of flesh and spirit. That's what the six-pointed star represents. The as above, so below. The pyramid pointing up is pointing up to the stars, and the pyramid above is the stars pointing to the earth. The yoking of flesh and spirit, the mingling of man and the spiritual realm. That's what's being insinuated here. In other words, this ancient rendition is saying that this tower's purpose was those in flesh trying to mingle with those of the spirit. And how would you do that? You'd have to be able to use some kind of witchcraft alchemy to open up a realm so that you could communicate directly so that you could commune directly with the spirit realm and that's what the tower was so this is exactly what witchcraft and sorcery is there's nothing new under the Sun the same Babylonian occult stuff that was going on in Nimrod's day still exists today if you take a look at Baphomet for example you can't see it in this depiction very well, but on his arms it says, um, "solve a to coagula." That is Latin inscription for the alchemical properties of as above, so below. Notice that he's pointing up to the light-sided moon and pointing down to the dark-sided moon. That he's what he's describing here is this union or this yoking of the spiritual realm with the fleshly realm. This just represents the Genesis 6 thing all over again, that the angels came down and they mated with women. They were never meant to mate with the humans. They went outside of the genetic boundaries that God had prescribed for them and they took on flesh and they they slept with the women and they created these hybrids. That's exactly why we see this hybridization right here. Notice the angel wings with a goat's head and goat hooves and he has the male and female breasts This is a clear uh, depiction of this genetic hybridization. That's why we see the two serpent seed lines right here as the double alpha helix strand. One's light and one's dark. This represents the genetic contamination and marring of God's original creation. That's what it's all about. That is the secret. That's the secret that so many people on this planet do not know including a lot of Christians who have no understanding about the Genesis 6 situation. That's what the mark of the beast is about. It's not about sin. Man's been sinning from day one. He's always going to be a sinner. It's about the destruction of the genetic man, those made in Adam's image, who was made in the image of God. The enemy is going to do everything he can to mar this. He did it before the flood. He did it again after the flood. We see it picked up again in the Tower of Babel situation about the building this tower in order to transform men into something else. We see it later in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God is constantly having to deal with the serpent seed in order to prevent them from completely thwarting mankind. But the witchcraft and sorcery is is very evident and prevalent when you start studying it. For example, if you look at the six-pointed star on the right, which is what was used on the the dollar bill, and which is no doubtedly used all throughout witchcraft, we know that it's also the star of Rimphan. We know that it's related to the planet Saturn. We know that it was used for Baal worship and human sacrifice going back thousands of years. All it really is is just a bunch of different pyramids. Notice that it's the pyramid. It's the Tower of Babel pyramid in different positions with different insignias that represent the four earthly elements. And when you look at the six-pointed star, it makes all kinds of renditions of the Black Cube, which we know the cult of the Black Cube is one of the secret societies that are into all of the Masonic Babylonian religion. So basically, to summarize... There's all kinds of versions of witchcraft and sorcery and the occult, but they're all wrapped up in the same stuff. And it all goes back to Solomon, which goes back even before him to people like Nimrod, which goes back even before him to the fallen angels in Genesis 6, which goes back even before them to Tubal-Cain and Cain. And it goes back even before then to Lucifer in the garden. Lucifer is the godfather of the whole serpent seed system. And he is the one who began to introduce all of the witchcraft and sorcery. And then through his creation, and I say that very carefully because we know that Lucifer can create nothing, but he does have a seed line. He does have his own serpent seed line. So he did create something. He did inject something into humanity. And through his own creation, He's continued to improve and manifest and empower the witchcraft and sorcery over 5,000 years until it's going to finally culminate into the last day's beast system, which, let me remind you, is called Mystery Babylon. If you read the book of Revelation, it talks about Mystery Babylon. Why would it reference Babylon? Because it goes all the way back to the days of Babylon and Nimrod. They're all, that's all an archetype for the last days. We're looking at a future one world order and eventually a mark of the beast genetic contamination to make every single person part of the serpent seed line and to serve the Antichrist who is basically Nimrod incarnated in fleshed to house the spirit of Satan. So I think this will be a good place to stop for today, but just to summarize, when you look at CERN closely, it becomes evident that it is nothing more than a very high technological Ouija board where they're using quantum physics to perform witchcraft. That's one of the things that Alistair Crowley and the nuclear physicist Jack Parsons discovered when they started the Church of Thelema. They actually stumbled onto the fact that magic and witchcraft wasn't just some random voodoo, but it was all based on physics hyperdimensional physics and that when you when you use quantum physics you could open up doorways to the higher demonic realm and so that's exactly what CERN is and when you look at some of the quantum entanglement of the particles in CERN it ends up making some very interesting sacred geometric shapes ultimately you end up getting a diagram of a hexagram which within the diagram of the hexagram forms the cube. And so we've done some lectures in the past on CERN that I'll include in the description box that that kind of demonstrate the idea that CERN is using the sacred geometry and the ancient ways of witchcraft and sorcery in a new age way to open up a doorway to the demonic realm. It's exactly the same thing that witchcraft has been doing for centuries. They just happen to be doing it in a more high technological way. Only the difference here now is that CERN is so powerful, they claim that CERN is as powerful as a hundred thousand magnetic magnets, that it has the magnetic power greater than even the north and south magnetic pole of the Earth. And so, you know, when when they crank up CERN at some point in the future, which I believe CERN will be used it'll be the straw that breaks the camel's back, that eventually it's going to open up the mother of all wormholes. It's going to tear a huge hole in the fabric of space and time. It's going to create a huge hole through the veil between us and the higher dimensional realms, which is the spirit realm. And eventually it's going to connect us to Revelation 9, that they had a key to the bottomless pit. And when they open up the bottomless pit, we see the fallen angel, Apollyon, who connects back to the ancient Greek legends of Apollo, who Apollo was traced back to Osiris, and Osiris has been traced back to Nimrod. That the fallen angel, Apollyon, is going to come through that wormhole, along with all of the insects, and the scorpions and everything that's listed off in Revelation 9. And even though that sounds absolutely insane, that's what all the science points to. That's what all the sci-fi movies point to. It's all about opening up a portal, opening up a wormhole, opening up another doorway to another dimension. So that's something that's very real where it's at in some other realm that we can't see, Our realm is very real, and their realm is very real. And all we need is a door between the two. And when you can tap into the science and physics of opening up a doorway between us and them, then they come in. And that's what the scripture teaches. In the book of Revelations, it says that eventually the bottomless pit is going to be opened up, and the entities that exist in that pit are going to have access to the planet Earth. And I've done lectures in the past on many movies demonstrating this point. For example, Lord of the Rings, which actually means the Lord of Saturn, and how planet Earth is called Middle Earth. And there's these forces of good and evil from different dimensional realms that are trying to occupy Earth and trying to open up the realms using the ring and the eye. And we see all of the orcs and the wraiths and all the supernatural, demonic, um, Nephilim-looking, blood-eating, cannibal, you know, cannibalizing creatures coming through and attacking you know, humanity. All, the, all that sci-fi stuff, which seems you know, science fiction, is more science fact than meets the eye. And so I do believe that the evidence corroborates that the Tower of Babel, was a sophisticated Masonic monument that was being used and being erected to reach the gods, if you will, literally, not just spiritually, literally communing with the gods in a very supernatural and high-tech sophisticated way. And then God put it into it. He, he, dis- he confused the language. He dispersed the people to the four corners of the earth. And all that knowledge for the most part, was lost, other than, you know, the witchcraft and things that would continue on through all the societies. But then the secret societies have continued, Nimrod continued, and we see the rebuilding of future empires, the rebuilding of the Masonic Babylonian religion through the Egyptian pharaohs, the Caesars of Rome, so on and so forth, and now today we finally have come to a place where the technology is just as advanced, if not more, as it was in the days of Nimrod. And now the tower is being erected again. It's a technological tower that's being used to reach the heavens. And one of these days, they're going to use it to open up the door, and uh, everything's going to shift on this planet, and Bible prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And so that just demonstrates even more prominently why we must follow Jesus Christ. Why we must follow Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Jesus Christ, the Savior. The one who says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who was, who is, and who is yet to come. And I believe that those who draw closer to the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will be with them. And that when these events begin to transpire in the future, whenever that is, and I don't know when that is, I don't believe it's hundreds of years away. I believe it's years away. Um, I believe that it's in our lifetime. For those of you who are in your younger or middle years, I believe that you could very well see the beast system come to rise and and be be looking down the barrel of the mark of the beast decision and um only those endowed with the holy spirit could be supernaturally protected the same way that daniel was protected in the lion's den the same way that noah was preserved on the boat i mean the boat the ark is a symbol of christ those who are on the rock when the storm comes will not be totally decimated and blown away That's why it says in Revelation 12 that Satan is cast out of heaven, he comes down to earth, and woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for he knows his time is short. And what does he and his fallen angels do in the last day? It says he he persecutes the seed of the woman of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. He is the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium. And all those who are in Christ, who are positioned in Christ, by accepting Him as their, his, their Savior, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, being born again and infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, those are the people who are going to be able to see through the mark of the beast, who are going to be able to see through the second Thessalonians 2, great delusion of the extraterrestrials coming to, to reveal themselves to mankind, and offering the, the genetic upgrade so that we can become more like them, the which will just make you part of the serpent seed and and remove you from the Adamic race and make you part of the serpent race so that you're no longer redeemable. And so that's it for today. Brothers and sisters, Godspeed. We'll see you on the next one.